My name is Lindsay Blackburn. I serve in King's Cross Kids on Sunday mornings. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Well, uh, if you don't already know me, my name's Chip. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Again, we're glad that you're here. We're going to be in Exodus 16 through 20. If you want to grab a Bible and and maybe a pen, um, a couple of key verses we'll be looking at this morning. As you're turning there, I want to give you two challenges uh, this morning, just as kind of pastoral notes before we jump into the text. The first one is that Easter is two Sundays away. It's very early this year. I know that comes as a shock to some of you. Two uh, Sundays away. And so if you were here early, maybe you saw me talking about that a little bit on the video. But here's my challenge to you. Um, would you be open, if King's Cross is your home, would you be open to praying and asking God to put somebody on your heart, or to bring somebody to your mind that he would like to see at King's Cross on Easter? Because there's undoubtedly there are people around you, you don't know what they're carrying. You don't know where they are spiritually. You don't know the things that are going on in their life. And so you may not know that they need an invite, but God knows. So would you just be open, if King's Cross is your home, to praying and asking God uh, to show you who it is that he would like to see at King's Cross, and you could just say to them, hey, do you have plans for Easter? Would you, you want to join me? Um, I really like my church. Um, it seems pretty, I, if I like it, maybe, maybe you'll like it too, uh, and just see if, if they would be willing to come. Secondly, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, um, <laughs> and if you look around this morning, maybe you say we are, but we're growing. Um, we're a little light this morning. I don't know what's going on with that, but that's okay. We trust the Lord. Um, <laughs> we're growing, uh, we, so we just went to two services. Have you heard of Dunbar's number? Some of you know this? Nobody. Okay. So in the 1990s, there was this British... Um, social psychologist who postulated that the maximum number of interpersonal connections that anybody could keep track of at one time had an upper limit of about 150. And and what she said was, her name was Robin Dunbar, what she said was, if you get above that, you can't keep track of people. Now, since then, as people do, researchers have argued what the exact number is, but everybody kind of agrees it's somewhere between 100 and 300. Okay, so if we've gone to two services, our attendance is well above that now every week. Your brain and my brain can't keep everybody's name in their head. Fair? You can't, you can't do it. And yet, we're meeting new people every week, literally every week. So last week, for example, I met four first-time guests in the lobby just last week. And that was just me. So I don't know how many first-time guests were here, but I met four of them. And so here's my second challenge to you. If King's Cross is your home, would you please consider introducing yourself to someone you don't know every week? Now you say, no. That makes me super anxious. (laughs) Okay. It doesn't make you as anxious as it makes me. Okay, hear me. I have a fair amount of social anxiety. I am much more comfortable up here than if I was serving as a greeter at the door. I would much rather talk to a crowd, okay? So I'm just telling you, but here's the thing. So I love people. 
so I, I, I genuinely love being with people. I just have a hard time remembering their names. And it's super embarrassing to me. It's super embarrassing. Literally this morning, I've already said hello to somebody that I've already met before. Like, I just, but people feeling welcome and seen and encouraged by being at King's Cross is more important to me than overcoming and hiding my own social anxiety. You with me? So I'm asking you to join me in, in like, let's just make awkwardness part of our culture, okay? <laughs> I'll add it to the wall if we need to, okay? Together we are awkward, and I can list three ways that we're awkward, okay? But So let me just give you some tips. This is the way that I've learned to overcome this. I don't ask people, um, I don't say, uh, are you new? Who wants to be asked that? Right? So what I'll say is, have we met yet? Because now it's on us. This is about us, not you. Because if I say, are you new? And somebody's like, no, man. Well, that's weird, right? Or if I just walk up and say, my name's Chip. And they're like, I know I had dinner at your house last week, man. Like, what? Okay, so just say, have we met yet? And then it's either yes or no, and now you're off and running. So and here's the second question. Like half of you are like, that's what you said to me. I know. This is my coping mechanism, okay? So the second thing that, I, that I'll say, once people say yes or no, and I, well, my name's Chip. Nice to meet you. And I'll say, uh, I don't say, is it your first week? Because either they say yes and they feel called out, like, <gasps> everybody here knows, or they say no and I feel dumb. So what I, instead, my question is, have you been around a while? And then now, okay, well, yeah, been, last week was my first week. Okay, praise God. Well, yeah, I've been around for about six months. Oh, I'm so sorry we haven't connected. No problem. You know, we had six new first-time volunteers in King's Cross Kids last week. Six people, Right? So, look, if you're just attending, if you're serving on a team, I'm telling you, the chances that somebody is in your immediate vicinity that you don't know are monster high. They're higher than they've been at any point since we planted the church, maybe other than week one. Okay, so just introduce yourself, because here's the point, right? It's not, we don't want to make guests a project. That's not what I'm saying. But we value people being connected in community. And sometimes people have to feel like they belong before they can believe. And sometimes people just need to feel like I can be here, that this is a safe place. Would you help me in that and just like jump over the anxiety fence into the field of awkwardness and just say, hey, have we met yet? My name's Chip. It's good. Have you been around for a while? Awesome. Just so that there's some connection and we can help people get connected in community. Can you, can you do that? Would you prayerfully consider that and pray and ask God who it is that you need to invite to be here in two weeks at Easter? We will be jammed out. We're going to add some chairs back in. Both services will be full and we will probably wind up needing overflow in at least one of the two services. So um, get here early, especially if you have children to check them in. Um, we have a great music uh, planned for that Sunday. So, but pray and ask God uh, who do you need to be here that I can, that I can invite? Okay, um, those are my challenges. Okay, Exodus 20, 16, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 16 to 20. 16 to 20. Over the last couple of weeks, 
What I've been saying to you, the book of Exodus is all about God saving his people. And so as we got to the end of the book of Genesis, the question was kind of, um, how is this going to happen? How is God going to save his people? And so the book of Exodus begins to answer those questions. It tells us that he's going to save his people by fulfilling his covenant promises. He's going to save them by the blood of a substitute. He's going to save them last week through the work of a mediator. Exodus gives us this picture of God's salvation. And this morning, we kind of turn the gem of God's salvation and we see another facet of what it is that it looks like for God to save his people. We see this biblical truth in chapter 16 to 20. It's in your notes if you like to follow along. That God saves his people and keeps on saving them. God saves his people and keeps on saving them. Five ways we see that. I'm going to show you one in each chapter. Um, if you're reading along with your devotional reading plan, you've read all of these chapters this week, that we just don't have time to do that. Um, and starting in two weeks, the pace is really going to pick up, because I know some of you are anxious, like, bro, it's March. Uh, <laughs> you said the whole Bible. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, the pace is going to pick up. So there's five ways that we see this. God saves his people, and he keeps on saving them. First, in Exodus 16, we see that God saves us from fear. He saves us from fear. God has confronted Pharaoh uh, through the work of Moses and of Aaron. He has demonstrated his power over all the false gods of Egypt through this series of 10 plagues. He has set his people free from their 400 years of bondage. But then we saw last week, Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends the strongest army on the face of the planet at the time after Israel to try to get his slave labor force back into bondage. And then God works through Moses again to part the Red Sea so that his people go through on dry ground. And when the saving, gracious hand of God is removed, the sea falls back in on itself and drowns and destroys the entire Egyptian army and all of its chariots and all of its horses. They get to the other side of the Red Sea. 600,000 men, the Bible says, not counting women and children. So maybe we're somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, somewhere between one and two million human beings. And immediately what happens, if you're familiar with the story, what happens is they begin to worship God, rejoice in their salvation, and trust God for whatever's next, right? <laughs> Some of you've read. No, <laughs> that is not what they do. Exodus 16, 1 to 3. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, that is, by the plagues. They would have rather have died in the plagues. Then we, at least then we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's been two months. Two months. And the people are filled with fear. Not 
because of what might be coming after them from back in Egypt and not over what might lie before them in the promised land. They're filled with fear because they're hungry. At least in Egypt, we had meat pots and bread to the full. So here's my question. Do you think the issue was food? No. The issue was fear. They feared starving to death in the wilderness. They didn't trust God with their future yet. So God, being full of grace and love, gives them meat and bread. Exodus 16, verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. He starts to give them manna and quail. And what he tells them, if you read through his instructions, is, I only want you to get enough for today. Because the issue wasn't about food. It was, do you trust me today for tomorrow? That, like he could have just said, here's a wagon full of grain. But he says, we're going to do this one day at a time because the issue is not, it's not about food. It's not about that. It's about fear. You don't trust me for your future yet. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get enough for one day. And even then, some of the people couldn't do it. They went and got multiple days worth, and overnight it rotted and got filled with worms because God was only going to let them get as much as they needed for today. They had been freed from slavery, but they still had a slave mentality, living in fear of what tomorrow might bring, or even scarier, what tomorrow might not bring. And they have this scarcity mentality. The problem some of you have is not that you're lost, it's that you're afraid. Afraid of what might happen if you don't save enough for retirement. Afraid of what might happen if you don't re- meet the right person soon. Afraid of What's going to become of your children if they keep going down this path? Afraid of what might happen if the next election doesn't go the way I think it ought to go. You've heard the gospel. You've trusted God to forgive you based on the perfect life and substitutionary death of Jesus. You believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. You believe that you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You've been saved. But you need God to keep on saving you from the fear that threatens to grip your heart and to saturate your mind to keep you up at night because you just can't get away from it. Some of us, the prayer in the Bible that we resonate with the most is with the Father in Mark 9. I believe. Help my unbelief. Some of you desperately need to remember that when Jesus taught his followers to pray, You remember, we call it the Lord's Prayer. He gets to the part about bread. And doesn't he say, pray like this, Father, give us this day our bread for this season that we're in. 
No, he says, here's what you need to pray. Give us today our daily bread. It's not about bread. The prayer is, would you help me to trust you today? To not live in fear today. And then tomorrow, remember when Jesus is telling people not to be anxious? And he tells them, why are you concerned about tomorrow? And then he says, tomorrow doesn't have any trouble at all. And he says, why are you worried about tomorrow? Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Well, that's real comforting. <laughs> Don't worry about tomorrow. It's a hot mess. We'll deal with that when we get, what's he saying? I'm going to teach you not to be afraid of tomorrow. This is what I'm going to do. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? And then he did another miracle. He fed the 4,000. And then he and the apostles are in the boat, and they're going across the sea, and the apostles, the apostles are arguing with each other. Do you remember why? Because they didn't have any bread. <laughs> they're worried about dinner. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. <laughs> it's not about bread. Don't you see who I am? Why are you afraid over dinner. It's the same lesson that the people of Israel are being taught by God in Exodus 16. And Exodus uh, verse 35 says that he's going to teach it to them every morning for 40 years. It's the same lesson that he's trying to teach some of you and even me this morning. I've got you. You don't need to be afraid. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll be there too. Just trust me. I've saved you, and I'm going to keep on saving you from everything that terrifies you. You don't have to be afraid. Exodus 17 we see that God saves us from a lack of faith. From fear and from a lack of faith. Now, it might seem, if you're just reading through it, like Exodus 16 and Exodus 17 are basically the same issue, except 16 is about food and 17 is about water. But there's a distinct difference in the text on the issue at hand between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Chapter 16 says the people grumbled against Moses... Chapter 17 says they quarreled with Moses and tested the Lord. Exodus 17, 7. Moses called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Chapter 16's fearful heart has mutated into a demanding spirit. They're now demanding that God do more and more and more for them every day to prove that he is still there. This is not passive fear. It's an active lack of faith that God exists at all. The same thing happens in the New Testament. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus has been doing miracles and they come to him and they demand yet another sign. And in Matthew 16, 4, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jesus says, The only sign I'm going to give you is that on the third day I'm going to walk out of an empty tomb. And if that's not enough for you, you're not getting anything else. 
because you're an evil and adulterous people. Your demand for a sign is betraying a hard-hearted lack of faith. That's the issue. You're trying to put God to the test. So hear me. There's a difference in a heart that says, I'm struggling to trust you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Like, I'm afraid of I don't know what's around the corner. Like, God isn't upset with that. God gives grace to the humble. He's not going to snuff out a smoldering wick. He's not going to break a bruised reed. Like, Jesus says, you come to me and you'll find rest for your weary soul. It is not a problem with God if you are weary and tired and afraid. But there is a difference in that and in making a demand that says, if you're real, you'll give me this. If you're really there, you'll show me that. If, if you really love me, this... No, 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 no. God opposes the proud. <laughs> he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So testing God is quite literally satanic. This is the way that, one of the ways that that Satan tempts Jesus in his own wilderness experience. So Israel's in the wilderness, and what they're doing is putting God to the test. Jesus gets baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness, and he gets tempted immediately by Satan. And in Matthew 4, 7, one of Jesus' responses to Satan is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is satanic, I'm not doing that. Well, it's not that Jesus never prayed and asked his father for things. He prayed all the time, prayed more than all of us combined. But he didn't put him to the test. And there's a difference. Or there's a difference in a heart that cries out, Abba, Father. And in a heart that makes demands to test God, to say, is he even among us at all? And so, friends, we have to be on guard to make sure that we don't allow the just normal, human, fears and struggles of our hearts to go unchecked because if we do, they will mutate into full-blown demands and tests of God's person and of his character. If he's real, he'll do this. And God says, no, no, I've saved you by grace through faith and I'm going to keep on saving you from getting to a place where your heart turns away from that and has a lack of faith. There's grace even when our hearts get to that place, right? So if you're someone who finds your heart reacting more like Israel in the wilderness than Jesus, so when you're in your kind of own wilderness season, there's grace even in that. Because if you read through chapter 17, God gave Israel the water they needed. It was a sin for them to put him to the test, and he still gave them the water they needed. Why? Because he's going to keep on saving them. More than that, at the end of the chapter, he actually wins a battle on their behalf. And so he's like, you're worried about provision, food and water? I got it. Oh, you need protection from an army that's come to destroy you? I got it. He's having to teach his people what salvation looks like. 
He had not gone through all that trouble in Egypt with the plagues and the whole Red Sea just to abandon his people the first time they started grumbling and quarreling. And hear me, Christian brothers and sisters, God did not send his only son to live a perfect life and die a death in your place for your sins just to turn his back on you the first time your spiritual knees buckle. He's not going to walk away from you. He saved you at the infinitely precious cost of the blood of his son. He's going to keep on saving you from a lack of faith, from turning away from him. He has done everything necessary for your salvation. Even if, in the words of Paul to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, he is faithful. Because he saves his people. And he keeps on saving his people. Third, in Exodus 18, We see that God saves us from ourselves. Saves us from ourselves. Being the leader of, you know, maybe somewhere in the ballpark of two million people, this is an administrative nightmare. (laughs) But that's what God had called Moses to do with the help of Aaron. That's what God called him to do, so that's what he was going to do. In fact, Exodus 18.13 says he did it from morning till evening, all day, Every day. Moses is the administrator. This is what he does. Moses has a father-in-law. It's a dude named Jethro. Jethro, like a lot of wiser, older people, comes along and observes his son-in-law and speaks truth into his life. Be encouraged if you're an older saint who's walked with the Lord a little longer, you've been around a little longer than some of us, we need Jethro's in our life to speak into them. Okay, so watch what happens, Exodus 18, 14 to 18. Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, and he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to inquire, come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statues of God and his laws. Moses not sinning, right? Like Moses is serving the people of God based on the word of God, using the gifts that God had given him. And it's kind of working. Yes? Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. God, through the wisdom and love of Jethro, is saving Moses from himself. Some of us, what we need is God to save us from us, from self-reliance, from trying, even with really good intentions, to do too much, from trying, if we're honest with ourselves, to live a life where we don't really need God. God, I'll handle my stuff. You can go worry about 
little kids and homeless people and drug addicts and like world plagues and I got me. And I say us because this is of the three that we see in these three chapters. This is the place from which I find myself needing to be saved most often. Not fearful that God won't do anything. I'm pretty confident in that. Not a lack of faith where I wonder whether or not there's a God who will do anything, if he's even there at all. I'm pretty settled on my answer to that. But I need God to keep on saving me from me because I have this tendency to be content to work hard in my own strength, using my own gifts to get good things done that people approve of and are thankful that I've done. This is what Moses is doing. He's not doing anything wrong. He's helping people, and the people are grateful that he's doing it. But God, through Jethro, says, well, this is not good. This is not sustainable. This is not the plan. Moses, I'm going to save you from you. See, the challenge that some of you have is you don't need bread. You're all good. And, and there's not even a big battle out there that you need God to save you from. The challenge you have is you're okay. Things are going pretty good. You're working hard. You're happy. People around you are happy. And what you've done is you've constructed a life where you don't need God. And what you need is for him to come along and save you from you. From wearing yourself out. And carrying things that are too heavy for you. Because he never intended you to carry them alone. And you and everybody around you applaud you for how hard you're working and how much you're doing. But God's going, no, 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 this, this, it's not good. And you just need him to speak into your life to save you from you. Fourth, Exodus 19. We see that God saves us for himself. For himself. Some of you have heard me teach on this before, um, but it may be my favorite part of Exodus, so you're going to hear it again. <laughs> if you've been around a while, because I just love it. Um, Exodus 19, Israel arrives at Mount Sinai. Moses is going to go up eventually and get the Ten Commandments and bring them down to the people. There's a ton that's going on here, but we're in this overarching uh, story where we're looking at the, the kind of meta narrative of the Bible during the year. And so um, what I want us to focus on is um, in particular uh, about how and why God saves his people is in verses two through six of the chapter. It says, they set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession 
among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Again in verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. The Hebrew word that's translated treasured possession is the word segula. Say segula. Segula. It's this word that described in the ancient Near East, if you were a monarch, you're a king, you owned everything in your territory. Like if I'm the king and I want your stuff, I just come get it. Because I'm the king, it's mine. And if you're in my territory, it's mine. So the forest is mine, and the rivers are mine, and the animals are mine, and anything that you mine out of the earth is mine, and anything that's made is because I'm the king. But the king's segula was his treasured possession. The segula was like in his palace, in his bedchamber, and he would say, well, Everything in the entire empire is mine, but this, this is my segula. This is my personal treasure. This is my, this is my precious. <laughs> We've been watching Lord of the Rings lately, right? Um, and he says, this is my segula. And God here says to the people of Israel, all the earth is mine, but you're my segula, my treasured possession." If you are already a Christian, you are not beloved by God because you're generous or because you attend church more often than you miss or because you don't cuss or because you've kept up with our reading plan and the devotional for the story. You are beloved by God because you're his segula. You are not saved because you're special. You're special because you're saved. You know why I love my daughters? It's because they're beautiful and they all three got accepted into really good colleges and they're respectful and buy me nice things at Christmas. That's why I love them, right? No, because they're mine. Because they're my daughters. That's why they're beloved. God did not save you Because you're awesome, he saved you for himself. You are his segula. And if you make a mess, not if, when, when you make a mess of things, and when you stumble in your walk with him, he isn't going to get frustrated and walk away from you. You're his segula. He's going to keep on saving you for himself, because even your salvation wasn't about you. So keeping it isn't about you. It's about him. That's such good news. Because if you grumble and quarrel with him in the middle of a wilderness season, he's not going to walk away. Last one, quickly. I'm out of time. and Also because we preach a 12-week series on the Ten Commandments. And so if you want to know more about that, you can find that on our website. But for now, I just want, I want to leave you with this and make sure you see that Exodus 20, God saves us by his word. He saves us by his word. 
verses 1 to 21, God speaks with Moses. He gives him these foundational building blocks of the law. He tells him to go give them to the people. The people are terrified. They say in verse 19 to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Hearing God speak felt like death to them when in reality it was life. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. From now on in the story, the relationship that God has with his people is going to be defined by his word. The people of God are going to be saved, sustained, and shaped by his word. So too for us who live on this side of the cross and know now that the word of God became flesh and dwelled among us. Because Jesus is the word of God. And we know, because Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. That's why we are so committed at King's Cross to preaching and studying and singing and praying. The very words of God in every ministry environment that we have. Because God saves his people by his word. And friends, he keeps on saving us by his word. Let's pray. Father, we we think sometimes about your word and we think who are we that you're mindful of us? And yet we're so encouraged that you have saved us not because of us, but because of you. Because that means if we trip and stumble, if we quarrel and grumble, you're not done with us yet. And so we ask that your spirit would just keep on saving us. For those who've not yet come to the place of initial salvation, we pray that the spirit would do a work in them, even right now, to open their eyes to turn their heart of stone to a heart of flesh, to bring them into the congregation of the redeemed, that they too might be a testimony of your grace. We are so thankful of this picture that you have given us through the very real historical events of the people of Israel that we might see in their story, our own story, and in their failings in the wilderness, our own stumblings in our wilderness, but that we might keep our eyes focused on Christ who did not fail his test in the wilderness. It's in his name that we pray. It is on his work that we lean. And it's because of his great salvation that we praise you. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.